1: Hi, guys. Welcome to New Books in Public Policy. This is Sean Hamilton, your host. Our guest today is Paul Barrett, the author of Glock, The Rise of America's Gun. Paul, welcome.
0: Uh, Glad to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you
1: so much for for joining us. Um, I guess first, tell us about your background and how how you came to write the book.
0: Sure. Well, I've been a journalist for, uh, well, uh, close to 30 years now. Uh, I've followed the gun industry uh, since the uh, late 1990s when I began uh, at the Wall Street Journal to follow litigation against the gun industry that was brought um, by uh, cities and counties all across uh, the country uh, that were imitating the states that had earlier sued the tobacco industry. So these lawsuits uh, very much fascinated me and I wrote about them at some length for the journal. And then I got interested in the gun industry itself, realized that it really was a unique industry, uh, uniquely uh, wound up with um, American history, uh, law, politics, culture. And uh, I I like to say that you never meet a boring person who uh, works in the gun industry. Everybody's got a story. Uh, Everybody uh, has some fascinating, uh, sometimes uh, slightly kooky experiences, and, um, it, you know, it's a, to me, it's a never-ending uh, source of, of interesting anecdotes and statistics and so forth. So some years went by. I wrote about other things, wrote books on some other subjects. And in 2009, an old source of mine who was a senior executive with Glock called me up out of the blue and said, uh, you know, you've always been bugging me to tell you more details about how Glock, which everyone knows is a very important uh, firearm manufacturer, uh you know, you wanted to know the inner workings. And I said, absolutely. And he said, well, now I'm ready to uh, to tell you. And uh, this began a process whereby this longtime executive, who at that point was a former executive, he'd had a falling out with the founder of the company, Gaston Glock. He uh, provided me with a lot of uh, fascinating inside information. I did a series of magazine articles uh, based on that information, uh, having moved at that point to Business Week magazine, And uh, that work uh, suggested to me that the story of Glock, the story of this one particular handgun, would actually uh, tell the larger story of the gun market in the United States and even more broadly the American fascination with firearms uh, in the latter part of the 20th century and early 21st century. So that's when I I realized, you know what, there's really a book in this, and I'm going to write basically a biography of a gun the story of the glock and that's what led to the book okay,
1: okay. now you open the book with a, a story about a shootout
0: in Miami right that, um,
1: t- t- tell, tell that story just to kind of set the s- stage for the
0: uh, sure thing this is the the famous uh, FBI Miami shootout uh, that uh, took place in nineteen eighty six and it really made an impression. On law enforcement at all levels in this country, Um, a group of uh, FBI agents on a stakeout, what they call a rolling stakeout, where they're following suspects in cars, um, uh, encountered two. In in this case, it wasn't uh, the characteristic uh, drug dealers um, who were the criminals causing so much violence at the time. These two guys were actually uh, bank robbers, old-fashioned bank robbers, but they were very, very heavily armed and. uh the FBI suffered a number of casualties and coming out of this uh this very uh gruesome lurid shootout the FBI declared that it needed to find a new handgun to replace the traditional Smith and Wesson 5 or 6 shot revolver that it had armed its agents with for uh literally for generations and uh at the same time uh, large municipal police departments all across the country were encountering uh, rising gun violence, and they said, you know, we, we need to do this too. We need a new firearm. And right at that moment, although entirely by coincidence, Gaston Glock was arriving in this country and saying, I have the pistol of the future. Uh, the, uh, the Glock, which he had invented uh, in uh, the early 1980s and sold to the Austrian military, and it had a number of features that really appealed to the American cops, as they had to the uh, Austrian uh, Ministry of Defense uh, before them. And uh, and that's really the story of how Gaston Glock, this obscure Austrian engineer, got his foot in the door here in the United States. Uh,
1: yeah. And now, uh, how talk a little bit about the um, the process by which Glock came to in, or Gaston Glock came to invent the gun itself. That was yeah. really
0: interesting. Very unusual story. This is not a guy who was deeply uh, steeped in the gun industry. He didn't even own firearms. Uh, He ran a radiator factory outside Vienna, was kind of a pedestrian engineer and plant manager. Um, He did uh, also run a small uh, home-based business in his garage where he operated a second-hand um, Soviet-built metal press with his wife, Helga. And they made things like uh, brass window fittings, and uh, steel knife blades. Well, the knife blades, uh, they eventually sold some of those to the Austrian military as for field knives and bayonets, and that brought him into touch with uh, military officials in his home country. And he learned in 1980 that the Austrian army was going to be replacing its World War II-era pistols, which were falling apart. And uh, in a very unlikely gesture, he put his hand up and said, I'd like to volunteer to design the new pistol, and people literally in the military laughed at him. Who are you? You, you make knife blades in, a, in your garage at home. You don't have a factory. You don't know anything about guns. But uh, every now and then you have one of these uh, strange incidents where someone with some ambition and, and possibly a lack of uh, inhibition uh, makes an opportunity for themselves, and that's what happened with Gaston Glock. He, uh, he knew he didn't know anything about guns, so he gathered several uh, European handgun experts, asked them for their best ideas of what they would uh, make if they had the opportunity to start from scratch with a brand new firearm, and those ideas became the first version of the Glock, the so-called Glock 17, Uh, named the Glock 17 because it was the 17th patent that uh, Gaston Glock uh, had acquired in his uh, theretofore quite humble career. And if you'd like, I'll mention a, several of the characteristics of the gun that made it innovative and made it so appealing to militaries, police, and then later to civilians.
1: Absolutely. And also just um, distinguish between the, a pistol and a revolver.
0: Sure thing. Uh, a, a revolver uh, has a uh, cylinder that holds the ammunition that um, moves in a, in a circular fashion each time you pull the trigger, the hammer falls, firing pin hits the back of the cartridge, uh, and that uh, initiates the explosion, the release of gas, and the propulsion of the bullet out the front of the barrel. In contrast, a pistol does not have a, a revolving cylinder; it has a an ammunition magazine, a rectangular spring-loaded box that snaps into the bottom of the grip with the uh, ammunition stacked up, one bullet on top of another. And the pulling of the trigger initiates a a process whereby the uh, mechanism on the top of the gun, the the so-called slide, uh, uh, shifts position, uh, scoops up a uh, a round uh, from uh the top of the magazine and puts it into the firing chamber so that it's ready to be fired when the firing pin hits it in, in back. So it's it's two different uh, uh technologies for uh propelling a uh, uh round out, out the barrel um and they they're quite different and uh have both designs have been around for a long time. What Glock did is he took the pistol design and he took it to a new level. He Uh, With the advice of his uh, expert buddies, he employed um, uh, industrial-strength plastic, or sometimes referred to as polymer, to build the bottom part or the receiver uh, of the handgun. This allowed him to make it much lighter. It uh, created more room um, for the magazine so he could make the uh, firearm have a larger ammunition capacity. The Glock, uh, to be specific, had... Uh, the original basic Glock had 17 rounds, mm-hmm. um, and that compares to 8 or 10 rounds in a typical pistol and to only 5 or 6 rounds in a typical revolver. So you could see right there that the, the Glock had considerably more uh, firepower. It was lighter. It was less uh, susceptible to corrosion because it was the part that the hand touches was made out of plastic. Um, it had a firing mechanism that had a very so-called uh, light so-called uh, trigger pull, which is a reference to the amount of force it takes with the index finger to uh, engage the trigger and, and cause the gun to fire. The Glock, for example, uh, the standard Glock has a trigger pull of about five and a half pounds. Uh, in contrast, the Smith & Wesson revolver has a trigger pull of 12 pounds. So you can see that it's a, it's a lot easier to fire the Glock, and that translates into two things. One... It makes accidents easier. If you touch the trigger by mistake on the Glock, it's going to take much less pressure to uh, shoot around into your leg or into your foot or God knows where else. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, professional football player Plaxico Burris and many others can tell you about the problems they've had with their Glocks uh, shooting themselves. Um, But on the, the positive side, it means that the gun is much easier to fire so that if you use it Properly, if you keep your finger outside the trigger guard and only put your your finger on the trigger when you are ready to fire and destroy something, uh, then you are much more likely to be uh, accurate. And as the police found in this country, um, shooters who were mediocre shots would become uh, competent shots, and people who were who were competent became excellent shots. Uh, And they had all this extra uh, ammunition, which. Uh, was seen as a, a great boon, at least if you're the good guys. I mean, <laughs> of course, if these, uh, the same firearm falls into the wrong hands, then the bad guys have more rounds to to shoot.
1: Right, right. Now, how how was the Glock introduced to to the states?
0: Well, it it kind of trickled over here um, through a couple of different mechanisms. Uh, there were there are, there are people who you know spend their whole lives uh, scouring the earth for the latest in firearms and and write for. Uh, various uh, gun magazines, and the Glock got some attention uh, that way, including in the uh, famous, or infamous, depending on one's perspective, uh, Soldier Fortune magazine um, discovered the Glock and did a big, um, very laudatory article uh, about it all the way back in 1984, and that got some attention in gun circles. The um, U.S. Secret Service, which is very interested in Uh, You know, the latest in gun technology, learned about it and brought a couple of samples back in 1985. Um, And around that same time, uh, Gaston Glock uh, realized, although he wasn't a particularly cosmopolitan man, or, you know, he didn't speak English and he he didn't really know much about international marketing, but it did occur to him that if I'm going to make a fortune out of this, I have to get outside of of Austria. Uh, And the, the biggest, richest gun market in the world by far is the United States. So he ended up hiring a uh an Austrian American English speaking salesman, a guy who had been in the gun industry here for many years and he happened to choose wisely. He chose a very vigorous uh very uh, uh imaginative guy who was was really kind of the Johnny Appleseed who took the Glock from police department to police department and showed them uh that this strange looking plastic pistol um really was a superior product and uh it kind of took off almost like a fad. I mean, one police department would adopt it. the shooting instructor for that police department would tell the guy in the next County or the next state, Hey, we've just adopted this strange thing called the Glock. You ought to take a look at it. And by the early 1990s, it was really replacing the Smith and Wesson all across the country. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now, but it was controversial right out of, right out of the gate, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. It was, it was controversial right from the start. And in fact, it, looked at first like maybe the, the, the Glock uh, would be kind of strangled in, in the crib, at least as a uh, something that would be available to uh, civilians, because gun control proponents were very hostile to it right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, however, this story turned out to have a very counterintuitive uh, ending, and the controversy that came to surround the Glock actually benefited the company and helped make Gaston Glock the billionaire that he is today. Let me explain. Um, the uh, the gun was opposed by gun control groups on a couple of grounds, but the main one was that because of its uh, being made primarily from plastic, it would defy airport security. Mm-hmm. And in the mid and late 1980s, uh, airplane hijackings were the main form of terrorism that people were focused on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was so, such a concern that the United States Congress convened hearings on the plastic pistol, by which they meant the Glock. That was the only, <laughs> only one being offered on the market. And major jurisdictions, including New York City, where I lived, the five boroughs of New York, banned the Glock by name, by brand, which is very, very unusual. It would be like banning a particular car by, by, by brand name. Uh, and again, the idea was that this was going to be, as the, uh, its opponents branded it, um, the hijacker special. That it would be, it would become favored only by the bad guys. Uh, there were rumors that Glock was selling his pistol to Muammar Gaddafi at that time, you know, the the ultimate ruler of Libya and and sort of public enemy number one uh, in that era, the Osama bin Laden of of his day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then it turned out that a lot of this was just mythology. At the congressional hearings, rather than lighting their hair on fire, federal officials came up and testified to members of Congress that, no, we're not particularly concerned about the Glock. The um, airport uh, technology of that era uh, employed uh, X-ray machines, and you can see a gun-shaped piece of plastic on an X-ray machine just as easily as you can see a gun-shaped piece of metal and wood. Mm -hmm. Um, Moreover, for the uh, gun-shaped piece of plastic to be dangerous, there has to be Ammunition, And the ammunition is the same ammunition, whether it's a Smith & Wesson, a Sig Sauer, uh, or a Glock. Um, So that whole uh, allegation literally fizzled away and was a tremendous embarrassment for the gun control movement and a tremendous victory for Glock. Here in New York, uh, while the New York Police Department, which oversaw uh, gun rules and still does today, was banning everyone from owning the Glock, it turned out there was a, a, a leak to the Associated Press And it was discovered that the police commissioner himself, a man named Benjamin Ward, was carrying a Glock under his suit coat. So that's the gun that he chose to carry to keep himself safe, um, but no one else could have it. Well, the New York ban uh, fell apart within a space of weeks. The New York Police Department, in its uh, wisdom, uh, announced that no, it turns out the Glock is not unsafe. And within a few years, the New York Police Department, the largest. Uh, municipal police department in the country had itself adopted the Glock. So from there, the momentum was really just uh, uh, furious, and uh, the popularity of the gun um, uh, spread with with tremendous speed.
1: Mm-hmm. And now, how how did the um, the gun consumer um, come to, I guess, learn about the guy?
0: Yeah, well, a lot of people in this country, a lot of civilians who own guns, uh, who would own a handgun for whatever reason, target shooting. Uh, protect themselves at home, uh, used to be in the military and want to have a handgun, whatever. Um, look, first of all, to their local police department to see what's new. So that's one way that civilians learned about it. Another way civilians learned about the Glock was through popular culture. Uh, another tremendous uh, serendipitous advantage that Glock had was that Hollywood glommed onto his uh, weapon with tremendous enthusiasm. By 1990, in um, the one of the most popular movies of that year, uh, the the second uh, Die Hard movie starring uh, Bruce Willis, the Bruce Willis character, one of the you know the great action heroes of the era, delivered a a, a whole soliloquy in the movie to the Glock, rhapsodizing about its various qualities. Now he actually. He actually got a lot of things wrong. He said the gun was made out of porcelain, that it was made in Germany as opposed to Austria and so forth. Um, but none of that mattered. Here he was, here's one of the most you know, famous movie stars in the country, basically saying this is uh, the cutting edge of firearm technology. And millions of people are going to see that movie. Word spreads even in the pre-internet era among uh, gun aficionados. And that's all just reinforced when uh, the hip hop world, basically simultaneously (laughs) embrace the Glock Mm -hmm. Uh, again for some of the same reasons it has a kind of dark glamorous tough look Um, it's called the Glock which is a word a a, a very staccato word that rhymes with cop and drop and a few other words that hip-hop artists like to throw around and you had uh, people as as popular as Tupac Shakur devoting whole songs uh, to the to the Glock Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, with tremendous uh, uh, irony and poignancy, Tupac Shakur himself was killed a few years yet later with a Glock uh, in in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So the, the the gun, in a period of just a few years, really was everywhere. <laughs> it was on the big screen, it was on uh, radio and on people's CDs. Uh, it was on the hip of the uh, police officers. Uh, everywhere you looked, uh, there it was.
1: Mm-hmm. And now what was Glock night at the gold club? That was pretty funny.
0: Yes. Well, um, one of the ways that uh, Glock ingratiated itself with police departments was to, they had a very innovative and aggressive program whereby they brought the shooting instructors and procurement officers from various police departments down to Atlanta, where they opened uh, their U.S. subsidiary. And they would bring them there for, uh, nominally for a, a training period where they would uh, explain to them how the gun worked and, and how to service it and so forth. But the highlight of these four-day training sessions was a uh, an evening at the Gold Club, which was in the 1990s, uh, certainly Atlanta's uh, premier uh, gentleman's club, uh, to use a polite term. It was a high-end strip club. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it really had a, a national profile for whatever reason that you know a place like that comes into vogue the the gold club was really popular with celebrities and with particularly with athletes so you'd have a lot of nfl athletes nba athletes who would uh, patronize the gold club and then glock they had they they were so frequent there and such a regular customer that thursday nights were actually known as glock night at the gold club and the Glock personnel would come over with twenty-five or thirty um, of of these cops from around the country. Many of whom, you know, it was a kind of a big deal to be away from home at all, let alone in the big city in Atlanta, let alone, you know, at a at a glitzy uh, strip club where they're going to see, uh, you know, their favorite NBA players saunter by. Uh, and so this was a very impressive, if not necessarily particularly upstanding way of making an impression on these key consumers. And it was very much in keeping with how Glock promoted itself. It always walked this very interesting fine line between being the gun of law and order, the gun that the police carry to protect the innocent, and kind of the bad boy gun at the same time. And that having that dual appeal is one of the uh, things that uh, made the Glock unusual. Got you,
1: got you. And now, and they were able to take that same approach to gun shows and places like kind of out on the road, so to speak, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. They were very, very aggressive, and um, and 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 really to use the same strategy. The uh, the gun industry in this country has an annual convention um, called the Shot Show, which stands for Shooting Hunting Outdoor Trade Show. It's often held in Las in uh, Las Vegas, and within a few years. The Glock party at the shot show became the social highlight of the shot show. I mean, Gaston Glock would pay the uh, Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders to come and do their thing. And it's just so everyone wanted to be there. Even competitors, Com- people who work for other companies, would, would try to you know, snag a ticket, uh, an invitation, so they could get into the, the Glock party. And it, the company, just through all of these various ways, uh, developed an aura um, that, you know, kind of an intangible, um, quality, uh, again, not, that, not necessarily a quality that you'd want to, uh, you know, take home and, and talk to your wife about or talk to, or talk to your mom about, um, but a quality that very much appealed to the people they were trying to sell guns to. Okay.
1: And now how did that affect Gaston Glock himself?
0: Well, Gaston Glock went from being this pretty obscure guy to being an international, uh, business celebrity and ultimately a billionaire private jets by the way he's a pilot so he, he even flew some of his own private jets mm-hmm. um and he's suddenly jetting all around the world and uh rubbing elbows with movie stars who uh you know like arnold schwarzenegger uh who use his uh guns at least in a theatrical sense in the movies mm-hmm. uh, schwarzenegger is a fellow uh, austrian of course um he's meeting the pope uh he's being honored at the uh at the SHOT Show in Las Vegas. And I think it's fair to say that this uh, kind of went to his head, and he became a fairly eccentric guy who was um, determined um, to do several things. One, to keep the money that he was making and not uh, uh, allow the taxman to take uh, too much of it. And that prompted him to set up a very complex corporate structure with a lot of shell companies all around the world moving his revenues around so that profits would be recognized in low tax jurisdictions as opposed to the United States or other high tax jurisdictions that's not something unique to him but he did it with a uh, an unusual degree of, uh, of vigor shall we say um, and um, he also had a series of falling out fallings out with his top aides uh, in 1999 and the best illustration of this was uh, there was an attempt on his life, a serious assassination attempt that took place in a parking garage in Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, in the end, after a few years, the man arrested for masterminding this uh, assassination attempt, this hit, was his top financial advisor, uh, a Luxembourgian guy, who is still in prison today, having been convicted of attempted murder. Glock was attacked by a hitman who bizarrely did not use a gun but used a rubber mallet. The thinking being what the police concluded was that they were trying to bash him on the head and then make it look like he had fallen down a flight of stairs in this parking garage. That was the plot. Um, But Glock was a very uh, tough old bird. He was 70 years old when this happened, and he basically fought his uh, attacker to a draw before the police came and rescued him. So it was quite a story. And, and, And another indication of the kind of strangeness that came to surround this company in in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. One thing I wanted to I don't know if you talked about this in the book but when when the gun itself was created by Glock it was the socialist government of Austria was financed right or sort of
0: made That's correct. The, the government still was was socialist. That's true. Yeah,
1: and so but then the he becomes this huge capitalist. Was that ever a source of conflict within Austria for, for Glock?
0: No, he, because he, his product became a, um, a, a tremendous source of national pride. The, the fact that countries, not just elsewhere in Europe, but the United States and countries around the world were adopting the gun, so that when the Iron Curtain fell and um, Austria came out from under uh, the influence of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union collapsed, um, he made a pretty smooth uh, transition. I mean, he became, as you correctly point out, he became an industrialist under the old regime, um, and the extent of his uh, wealth might have been somewhat limited if he had rema- if that old political regime had uh, remained, but he had the good fortune uh, of coming into most of his money in the 1990s, by which time... Uh, uh, Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, was uh, was emerging from uh, from communism and socialism.
1: Mm-hmm. And now another question: So, socialists get criticized for all the things they seem to not be able to to invent or improve on. Blue jeans was one I, I heard that most Soviet countries never were able to to do well in cars too. But the AK forty seven was created in the Soviet Union, and yes, the Glock, you know, was. What did you, did you, wh- well, I guess, why do people call the Glock the AK-47 of handguns?
0: Well, because like the AK-47, it is defined by its simplicity. Mm-hmm. The fact that it has very few uh, moving parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it can operate even when it is not uh, uh, taken care of very diligently. In other words, if it gets a little dirty or a little gunky, it'll still continue to fire. Um, and it is a, it's a very basic firearm, Uh, Not a lot of bells and whistles, and for that reason, as you say, it has been compared to the uh, AK-47, although to be clear, the AK-47 has had a much bigger political and social influence all around the world than the Glock has. I mean, There have been millions and millions, tens and tens of millions of AK-47s and knockoff AK-47s manufactured all around the world. Um, Gaston Glock has um, kept better hold on his intellectual property and while the Glock has been very influential and many other gun companies have imitated his designs over time, uh, it, it hasn't you know, fueled revolutions and so forth the way the uh, AK-47 has.
1: Mm-hmm. And tell me a, a little bit about some of the civilian Glock users you met in writing the book.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, th- this takes you to the point that uh, big uh, parts of this country are uh, – Deeply enmeshed in what I think it's fair to call a gun culture, meaning that they see tremendous uh, symbolic and cultural significance in firearms. They take the Second Amendment very seriously. They see guns as a representation of individualism and self reliance. And uh, the Glock, in a lot of ways, uh, really exemplifies those values because it is a very sort of business like. Unfancy, get the job done, and in that sense, even though it's made in Austria, a very American uh, firearm, and so it, it has a lot of very uh, enthusiastic fans. And like anything in a country this big, it has a lot of people who don't like it. There's a there's an alternative uh, earlier design of uh, pistol called the 1911. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, a sort of a generic design that's actually manufactured by a lot of different companies. And there are people who will argue with you all day about the merits of the 1911 over the Glock and the 1911 looks better and so on and so forth. These are fairly esoteric debates, um, kind of like if you are going to argue with someone over whether you like a Corvette more than a Mustang. Um, uh, but the, the Glock definitely has a, uh, a very loyal fan base in this country. Mm -hmm. And
1: now the 1911, is that an American-made gun?
0: Yes. Uh, The the 1911, uh, you know, originally made, uh, manufactured widely by Colt. The reference is to the year it was introduced. It was adopted um, initially by the American military. Uh, And it is a, uh, a, a larger and in some ways clunkier uh, gun, but one that in terms of its aesthetics uh looks uh, to some people's eyes uh more appealing mm-hmm. and uh I, you know i've used uh, both firearms they have their advantages and disadvantages um and but at, at this point calling something a nineteen eleven would be almost like call i don't to see what you do you know it's almost like calling something a convertible or something I mean, it's, right. it it's a uh it, it's a tight it's a it's a design that is uh employed by and used as a label by many, many uh, manufacturers. Mm
1: -hmm. Talk about the the, uh, mass shooting in Killeen, Texas. In
0: 1991, uh, a madman drove a uh, pickup truck uh, through the plate glass uh, front window of a cafe called Luby's in Killeen, Texas. Uh, He jumped out of the car and uh, uh, using two handguns, one of them a Glock, um, killed uh, more than 20 people. At the time, it was the largest random mass shooting in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. This introduced the pattern of the Glock being used in such random mass shootings where people seemingly with a suicidal bent decide to take a lot of people out with them as they go. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's it's been pretty well established that um, people with that uh, horrific inclination... Uh, choose the Glock for very much the same reason that other people choose the glock it 's got a lot of firepower. you can get a lot of rounds off and do a lot of damage um, before you have to reload and There have been a whole series of mass shootings in which uh, the Glock has uh played a role, including the uh the shooting in uh, Tucson, Arizona, in the shopping mall where representative uh, Giffords was wounded mm-hmm. um, and the aurora uh, movie theater uh, shooting where the uh in Colorado where the bad guy uh, had a Glock as well. Yeah.
1: What magazine size were, were they using? Um, I, I think Gabby Giffords, was it one of the expanded magazines? Yeah.
0: Yes. Uh, the, the uh, shooter in that yeah. case had a, uh, uh, a 30 round magazine, Okay. which is just as a quick aside is sure. not something that any, um, Ordinary user would put in his gun say if you were going to carry it concealed I mean no police officer would put a 30 round uh, magazine in in the firearm because it sticks very awkwardly out of the bottom of the grip of the gun um, and that you know and that takes you to some uh very controversial issues having to do with gun control and why we do or don't allow people to manufacture and sell large magazines and that's an interesting question and the glock has been part of that debate.
1: Just in talking to some of the gun users that you spoke with, I mean, from the book, a lot of a lot of them seem very rational, responsible people. What were their views on, say, a thirty-round magazine for a handgun?
0: There are very few gun owners who would say that they um, feel that it's a uh, a day-to-day necessity to uh, to own an accoutrement like that. They're the the reason why people um, Resist regulation of magazines, or for that matter, any particular firearm or piece of gear, is um, more uh, symbolic and political. Their view is that um, that the Second Amendment, uh, in their reading, uh, says you know you, you, that the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What part of "shall not be infringed" do you not understand? <laughs> and moreover, any gesture, any effort to tell them what type of gun they can or can't have is only the first step toward more aggressive uh, policies that will ultimately culminate in confiscation of their firearms. This is an argument that's very difficult to counter because it relies on a slippery slope logic that right. what you're proposing is not what you're really proposing. It's just a pretext for something else. Yeah. And um, this is part of the reason why this debate has the kind of the strange uh, uh, nature that it does, right? Just
1: right. describe the different markets for handguns. There's, I guess, the primary market, which is just stores or gun de- gun
0: dealers, and then it's- uh, guns are sold. Um, well, from the ma- the manufacturer mm-hmm. sells guns to wholesalers to middlemen. Mm-hmm. The wholesalers sell them to retail uh, outlets. This would range from. At one end of the spectrum, a mom and pop uh, store, you know, Fred's Guns on Main Street, USA, all the way up to Walmart or, uh, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods or Cabela's, which are large um, general purpose stores that retail all kinds of products, um, but also happen to sell firearms. And then there's a secondary market where individual gun owners um, sell and resell firearms that they've purchased, and they may do that. Um, at weekend gun shows or these days increasingly uh, via the Internet. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And so what, I guess, where exactly are we in regulating the secondary market for gun sales?
0: Right. I'm sorry, what's the question? Oh, yeah.
1: Um, what kind of regulations are we seeing now in, in
0: the secondary market for guns? Well, there are, uh, there are a variety of regulations if you're in the commercial gun business you're supposed to have a license which makes you uh which puts, puts you under the supervision of the ATF the mm-hmm. alcohol, alcohol tobacco and firearm bureau um, there are more than 50,000 people who hold uh those licenses and again those that would range from individuals who may sell firearms uh from their garage um, to uh uh to Walmart Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of other people who buy and sell firearms who are not, quote, in the business, close quote, who are not commercial uh, dealers, Mm -hmm. uh, who don't categorize themselves that way. And under current law, uh, you are allowed to buy and sell those firearms, um, you know, as long as you do it within your state, not across state lines, uh, and um, you're not... uh, There's no questions asked. The background check that applies to all uh, licensed dealers doesn't apply to the unlicensed dealers. And that's a big source of the uh, the current controversy over whether gun laws ought to be tightened. A lot of people, uh, including members of Congress, have advocated for applying the background check rule to all commercial gun sales. um, But that uh, proposal just last week was defeated.
1: Now, are are there any gun organizations that support that kind of legislation? As as you know.
0: Well, um, you know, the key fact is that the bi- the biggest, most potent organizations oppose oppose it—the NRA mm-hmm. um, and others in the in the gun rights uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Um, there are s- some smaller organizations. Uh, there's a there's a group called the Independent Firearm Owners Association, mm-hmm. which is uh, based in New Hampshire, run by a former NRA guy named Richard Feldman. That's very pro-gun, but in this current, most recent round of debate, endorsed comprehensive background checks, uh, with an exception for family members and friends. So there's some um, variety within the gun-owning world. But the people who have the largest organizations and the most resources and the most influence are uh, very uh, attached to the idea that when people propose something like comprehensive background checks, it's really just a pretext for something else. Mm-hmm. And whether that's true or not is almost beside the point, because it's, a, uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an allegation you can't prove or disprove. <laughs> and uh, it, has, it has shown itself to be very, very uh, potent in Washington, for better or for worse. At a state level, in, in many states, uh, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Connecticut, New York... Colorado, Maryland—they've uh, all shifted their gun laws in the wake of the massacre in, in Newtown—and I think we'll see some other states shift their gun laws as well. Uh, so we have a federal system, and you have different rules in different places.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, in your in your research, has it has the gun, I guess, lobby or the gun community always been this sort of um, I don't know, um, in, unable to to change or you know what I'm the question. There was a, a
0: there was a major shift in uh, the gun debate in the late 1970s. The uh, NRA on each side got much more uh, politicized and took much more extreme positions, and then in the 1980s uh, came to have much more influence in Washington. Uh, on the other side, um, uh, the movement shifted uh, in, in a different way. In that, in the late 60s and, and much of the 1970s gun controllers really wanted to ban all handguns in this country. Mm. And the fact that they had that position back then is frequently brought up by the NRA today because they say, well, today you are asking for much more moderate restrictions, but we know what your real agenda is. So the gun control movement has actually, in a lot of ways, moderated its demands while the pro-gun side has gotten more aggressive, and more extreme. And the bottom line is that over the last dozen years, uh, the gun debate has shifted very drastically in the favor of the pro-gun side. Some people think that's great, some people think it's terrible, but that's sort of the uh, that's the way things have gone.
1: Right. Tell um, so the story of the, um, the municipalities trying to sue the gun industry. We, we saw that happen a few times, right?
0: In the late 1990s, uh, cities and counties around the country got together with plaintiff's lawyers who had sued uh, the cigarette industry in the mid-90s, and they sued the gun industry and musk, Glock, and other companies on the theory that the gun companies should be held liable for the costs of gun violence uh, in big cities. Uh, these These would be the medical costs, emergency response costs, and the police costs connected to gun violence. This is very appealing to a lot of liberals. It seemed like a rough analogy to the claim that states had made um, about the tobacco industry, that the tobacco industry should be responsible for the massive health costs related to uh, smoking-related illnesses. Um, But the gun suits, unlike the tobacco suits, did not lead to a huge settlement, uh, and in fact fizzled out. And they fizzled out for two reasons. One, the analogy was not, ultimately perfect and not appealing to a lot of judges because unlike in the situation with cigarettes, there's an intervening uh, wrongdoer within, in the gun scenario in order for the gun for that product to have a harmful effect. It has to be misused. Mm. If it's sitting inert in some lawful owner's gun safe in his closet, actually it's not imposing any additional costs on society. It, becomes a problem um, when a criminal uses it or an insane person uses it uh, and so forth. And uh, judges, when they looked at this theory, said um, to the plaintiffs, to the cities and counties, you, you're, you're missing a, a step in your logic. Um, and by leaving the trigger person out, by leaving the, 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 the bad guy out, you're creating a chain of liability that I'm not going to enforce. A second... Um, reason the suits failed was that the NRA and local gun organizations persuaded state legislatures uh, in 1999, 2000, 2001 to pass statutes that banned the lawsuits. So even whether or not the local judge was throwing the suit out on legal grounds, the legislature was stepping in between the lawsuit and the judge and saying, get out of the courtroom. We ban this as a statutory matter and then in 2005 this um so-called preemption movement um had its uh, major effect which was that congress passed a law in 2005 which president bush signed which banned such lawsuits all across the country mm-hmm. so right now the upshot of all of that activity is that the gun companies are actually more shielded than they had been before mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. now there was also the the whole process by which glock would sort of buy guns back from police departments?
0: Yes, Glock uh, instituted a very uh, creative um, and ultimately controversial program whereby they would uh, give police departments big discounts um, on new Glocks if they would trade in their old firearms, whether they were revolvers or even the first-generation Glocks that they had bought. Glock uh, then basically resold those on the secondary market, and that made the transaction uh, financially attractive Uh, to Glock, but it had the side effect of uh, disseminating more guns, putting more guns on the market. Um, So that's the reason that once people noticed that this was going on, it became uh, very controversial in the mid and late 1990s.
1: Right, right. So I think one example you gave was New Orleans was trying to sue gun manufacturers, and yet they found that some of the guns that they had already traded back in were back on the streets in New Orleans. They were complicit. That was... Yeah,
0: that was a situation where where Glock uh, kind of caught uh, the city of New Orleans anyway in a position of, of being quite hypocritical. Uh, the, the city was saying, you, Glock, are creating a uh, sort of a nightmare. You're polluting our streets with your guns. Um, you're producing more guns than, than lawful buyers really need, and that's fuel and crime. But then it turned out that the city of new orleans was itself selling its own guns back to glock fully knowing that they would end up back on the street and in fact had put made an arrangement with glock so that they, the the new orleans police guns would not be resold within the state of louisiana so they they arranged so that it would be dumped on somebody else and this uh this uh undercut the uh i think the uh righteousness of the city of new orleans and other cities that were employing similar uh, measures uh, had in in condemning the gun industry because they were basically in the gun business too. Right. Now, I'm going to have to wrap up with another question or two, so sure, yeah. uh, what what else can we uh, talk about?
1: Um, I guess the, my last one of my last questions would just yeah. be, what do you think is sort of, what kind of gun control would you say is reasonable at this point?
0: Based on your oh, well, that's a big question. I, I would answer that by making a suggestion I've made in print, which is that I wonder whether the whole debate ought to be um, reconfigured. Mm -hmm. And we ought to uh, look at it from the perspective of uh, reducing crime, not uh, arguing about who can own which guns. Mm -hmm. Uh, Debating who can own which guns under what circumstances is really um, an indirect way of trying to control crime, trying to control the misuse of guns. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that a, a way to sort of break through the logjam on this issue is to go directly to the misuse of guns, mm-hmm. um, a form of conduct which is already illegal. Um, it is already illegal in, in in almost every case where a gun is used. Just to use New York as an example, mm-hmm. is used on the streets of New York, and you know anyone walking around with a gun likely is walking around with it illegally. Mm-hmm. So I think one question to ask is how can we discourage people from walking around with guns illegally because that will make it less likely that people will be using guns illegally. And the interesting thing is that in cities like New York, and in fact, most big cities in the country, gun crime has actually been going down and going down sharply for 20 years. So while we still have a tremendous excess of gun violence, no debating that, we have less of an excess. We have less of a problem than we used to have. So something is happening. And I would say I would refocus the debate on the question of what's happening, what's working, how can those uh, law enforcement steps be reinforced and um, spread to other jurisdictions where perhaps there hasn't been as much progress in the last 20 years. And if there are a few specific uh, steps that we might have previously categorized as gun control, um, but which can just as easily be categorized as keeping guns out of the hands of criminals, mm-hmm. in other words, um, a question of access as opposed to a firearm type, um, then that, that should be part of the program. And I think, for example, uh, comprehensive background checks are, are a very good illustration of that. That's a, a rule we already have in the books. Um, there's very wide agreement that uh criminals and people adjudicated uh mentally ill should not be getting access uh to firearms and that seems to me to be very much a uh an adjunct to tough law enforcement that keeps uh that discourages people um from walking around with guns illegally well let's also make sure that they're discouraged from trying to acquire the guns uh, illegally and if you frame the background check uh, initiative in that context, it, to me, it's, it, it comes across as much more a crime prevention uh, measure than something that impinges on any law-abiding citizen's ability to uh, possess a gun. And, um, you know, sometimes context is important. And if, if the context is we're really trying to protect the good people from the bad people, we're trying to make sure the bad people don't put their hands on firearms, any kind of firearms, uh, you know, assault weapons to the smallest uh, handgun. That We don't want the bad guys to touch any of them. Um, that's an agenda, it seems to me, that could be sold more readily, perhaps, um, than the endless cultural warfare over what guns symbolize to law-abiding people. Okay. What, what are you working on next, Paul? My next book is... Uh, coming out from Crown, which is a publisher of the Glock book, um, next year. And it concerns uh, a 20-year uh, legal fight over who's responsible for cleaning up uh, the terrible oil pollution in the rainforest in northeastern Ecuador. In the Amazon in Ecuador, there's a huge uh, oil production zone uh, that was uh, first uh, exploited by Texaco Uh, since then by many other companies. And there's been a lawsuit that was filed all the way back in 1993 on behalf of um, indigenous villagers and farmers uh, whose uh, environment has been sullied by this oil activity. And the legal fight is just a totally fascinating one and uh, brings to the surface... um, the fact that while the oil companies may not have been as responsible as they should have been there have been a lot of other parties who have not been as responsible as they should have been including the government of Ecuador and uh, brings to the fore uh, some of the very unsavory uh, uh, tactics that all sides have used in this endless legal war while meanwhile um, no one has uh, has cleaned up the oil and the Indians are still up to their, uh, their ankles in crude oil
1: yeah, that's, that's fascinating it's, it seems like a completely different,
0: different yeah situation. I hope so
1: yeah that's great Well, Paul thanks so much guys you've been listening to New Books in Public Policy with Sean Hamilton and our guest has been Paul Barrett uh, Paul thank you so much for uh, joining
0: us my great pleasure Yeah, absolutely. appreciate your interest
1: okay, thank you